Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, we will discuss a variety of issues, including affirmative action. I am pleased to have a well-known political scientist with me today to discuss all of this. Dr. Sekou Franklin is a professor in the Department of Political Science at Middle Tennessee State University. He is the author of After the Rebellion, Black Youth, Social Movement Activism, and Post-Civil Rights Generation. He is co-author of Losing Power, African Americans, and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics. He has written numerous scholarly articles on issues of race, class, and social activism. He is past president of the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. He is involved in and has leadership roles in too many wonderful civic groups for me to mention here. He is frequently interviewed by media outlets as an expert in Tennessee politics. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Franklin. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And please call me Sekou. Okay, Sekou. I'm so glad you could join us. How are things in Tennessee? Tennessee is a rough and tumble political state. It's you know, depending <laughs> upon what side of the political aisle you're on and things are always moving and we're about to approach a special session that purportedly was supposed to do a gun reform in response to the covenant shooting early this year. But in reality, it's now being used as a muscle by the uh, supermajority to push through what some people suspect might be some draconian p- pieces of legislation. OK, we'll, we will get into all. <laughs> so can you talk about your um, background and research interests? Yeah, my, my background is um got my doctorate degree from H- Howard University, Washington, D.C., and, you know, I had training on a variety of other in other areas from uh, social network analysis to redistricting. Um, I served as worked on voting rights cases as well. We do a lot of work with grassroots organizations and civil rights groups, uh, work closely with the Tennessee NACP and, and other groups as well um, and have a passion for civil rights, voting rights, social justice, uh, do a lot of work even on on nonviolent uh, training, nonviolent uh, resistance movements as well. And I've lived in Tennessee since the fall of 2003 or summer 2003. Well, you're you're a busy bee. So first, um, I want to talk about affirmative action generally. The media often says that most people in the United States oppose it, but I think it depends on how you ask the question. I tend to view it positively. I teach at a community college and about half of the students are persons of color. And, you know, I just feel like I benefit and the students benefit. And what is your general view of affirmative action? Well, I'm supportive of affirmative action. Um, and it, the depending upon what what part of the um, spectrum, uh, at least industry spectrum, you're 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 at? Historically, affirmative action, at least on the employment side, uh, when it was kind of established in the 1960s, on the employment side and the contracting side, particularly, um, it had had bipartisan support. There was more resistance to affirmative action um, in terms of the Republican Party in the 1970s in the education arena. But having said all of that, I'm definitely supportive of affirmative action. Is definitely needed. In, in reality, when affirmative action was really expanded in the 1970s, early 1970s, it was probably what you may call a middle, a middle ground or a moderate solution to larger demands for racial diversity, demands that really uh, were nationwide. You saw uh, students resisting from California and the UC, University of California system. There were resistance movements all over the country that ranged from establishing ethnic studies, black studies, 
programs, gender studies programs on college campuses. There was a push for more funding, open enrollment. And so affirmative action, you can make a strong argument, was probably a, a more a more moderate or middle ground position that educators and lawmakers settled upon. Now affirmative action has seen almost a, to- a totalizing level of resistance from the right in the area of education, um, in the area of employment, the industry, and contracting. We find more ideological diversity in terms of support for, for affirmative action. So, and we also find in many respects, military leaders, for example, supporting affirmative action in education. We can go back to the, for example, the 2003 case, it was called the Gretter case, um, in which the military leadership uh, for the country supported affirmative action. So there's different parts of the kind of affirmative action ecosystem that you can look at. But, you know, one idea about affirmative action that's also important for the audience to note is that if you're making, and this kind of comes across in some of the um, arguments about diversity, if you're making critical decisions, then you need diversity to analyze how you come to a collective solutions about around it, around those decisions. And there's been some interesting research on that. Uh, years ago, uh, a researcher named Scott Page, I believe, wrote a book called The Difference. And his argument was that when it comes to complicated decision-making issues, then having diverse opinions and diverse viewpoints and diversity matters a great deal on those more complicated decisions. Yeah, you know, that reminds me, I had an academic on, on my podcast who talked about the algorithms and discrimination. And a lot of these tech companies, they're mostly straight white men. And as an example, they had these soap dispensers that wouldn't recognize hands of color. They didn't even think about it, the pigmentation. So, yeah, I mean, I think we need diversity everywhere. So that's a good segue to talk about this recent U.S. Supreme Court case, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and University of North Carolina. By a vote of six to three, the justices ruled that the admissions program used by the UNC and Harvard violate the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, which bars racial discrimination by government entities. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice Roberts wrote that a student must, quote, must be treated based on his or her experience as an individual, not on the basis of race, end quote. In her dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor said the ruling, quote, fosters the people's suspicions that bedrock principles are founded in the proclivities of individuals on this court, not in the law, and it degrades the integrity of our constitutional system of government. In her dissent, Justice Katanje Brown Jackson wrote, quote, with let them eat cake obliviousness today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. And of course, we know that it is not so in real life. So what is your opinion of the ruling and your take on these dissents? Well, as I see it, and I teach civil rights policy, and I also teach a course on race and the law, from my perspective and kind of the networks and ecosystem that come out of, it's a very bad ruling that could have far-reaching, devastating consequences on not just diversity, but also uh, multiracial coalitions. And I can explain this in greater detail. Um, but I should say that in reference to uh, the Let There Be Cake reference, that's an interesting take because what the majority opinion has said, I believe, was that you, know, you can't use race, particularly, particularly targeting Blacks and Latinos. But in your application process, you could talk about your collective experiences, which might include so-called racism and other factors. And I think the judges think that maybe that's just enough, the majority opinion, 
um, in terms of articulating an individual applicant's concerns about um, diversity. But it's it's a devastating decision, both for public universities and private universities, one that was probably shopped around in terms of the, the plaintiffs were probably recruited and shopped around to bring a challenge to affirmative action, the one that comes on the heels of a larger backlash, white backlash, that was most articulated in the emergence of the Trump presidency, and one that also comes on the heels of a larger push by white supremacists and um, people that have deep seeds of racial resentment. There's this idea called replacement theory, that white whites, um, particularly white working class people, are being replaced by people of color, and that whites now represent the new so-called second-class citizen or the new kind of inferior class or the new group of people who are being treated like the N-words. And it's, that's typically called what's called replacement theory. And so going after affirmative action really is reflective of this larger backlash that we've seen, not just in the, at the societal, societal level, but also at the legal level. I think it has a lot of other kind of consequences. We've already seen in one or two states, states are, are using the affirmative action ruling to go after larger diversity programs on college campuses. So we can expect that both private and public universities, um, depending upon which state, will begin to downsize uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, will possibly even seek to um, go after academic departments that are also advancing diversity. And in fact, what the affirmative action ruling did was it should be paired with the so-called anti-critical race theory or, or so-called divisive concept legislation that we've seen in places like Florida, Tennessee, and other states too as well. Yeah, this is just like a, this is like a bad nightmare to me. I actually interviewed a gentleman who was fired from the University of Florida because they scoured his class and there was the word diversity. He talked about Black Lives Matter. I mean, it was a political communications class. He had to talk about it. So for people in academia, this is a, kind of a difficult time. So yeah. You touched on this. One of the arguments by some on the court and politicians, mostly Republicans who oppose affirmative action, is that systematic racism is over. Now, now this is just ridiculous. I mean, I have like hundreds of charts and graphs, and I'm sure you do, too. And basically that affirmative action is no longer needed. Interestingly, in a 2003 ruling, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor wrote that affirmative action programs should no longer be needed by 2028. But of course, she is not alive today to see the level of persistent racism today. I think it's interesting that she picked 2028. But how do you respond to these comments that affirmative action is no longer needed? Well, the people that are making that conclusion about affirmative action and number one, are talking about race-based affirmative action and more specifically affirmative action that is targeting Blacks and Latinos. The people that are really making that argument are the same people where they come from the same kind of political lineage as those people who never wanted affirmative action to begin with. But we've, we've seen in all indicators, whether we're talking about school suspension rates, whether we're talking about incarceration, with all of which, you know, lean into or feed into you know, whether or not you have good education outcomes, or whether we're talking about housing opportunities, policing issues, um, environmental justice, um, access to STEM programs, for example, science, engineering, technology, and mathematics. 
even just the recruitment of black teachers, for example, black and Latino teachers in many parts of the country, especially the South, um, we see that we have huge racial disparities, um, a lot of which are enhanced by poor funding opportunities, poor recruitment opportunities, systematic exclusion, and a whole range of factors. So systemic racism and institutional racism, they're fundamentally constitutive and part of the political fabric of this country, um, the political economy of this country. And that can be shown and borne out of a multitude of research, uh, many studies, and a whole range of factors. And if you want to come to the conclusion that that systemic racism or systematic racism, institutional racism are no longer here, then you you would have to ignore a, a mound of research, a mound of data, and a, and a whole range of other factors as well. So, and I will say that the people that are making that argument. They are actually for affirmative action. They're just not for affirmative action that's targeting Blacks and Latinos. They're for affirmative action when it comes to legacies. They're for affirmative action when it comes to athletics. They're for affirmative action when it comes to the fams, friend, friends, and donor, and the donors that are give, coming coming into or going to institutions. They're just not for affirmative action that's targeting African Americans and Latinos. Oh, can I add one more part to that equation? Oh, sure. The other thing about it is that that 2003 court ruling, I assume that was the Grutter case, the the two cases that come out of Michigan. Uh, one deals with um, they deal with two parts of Michigan's University of Michigan's higher education system, and effectively the the Supreme Court decided to not kill or save affirmative action with some modifications. And I'm only making a point because what universities have done is that universities have already modified their diversity and affirmative action programs relative to what they were in the 1970s and relative to what they were pre-2003. And those modifications, which do include considerations of race, do account for other factors, other forms of diversity, other factors. And they do respond to the Supreme Court's concerns going back to the Bakke case in the 1970s on up to the Grutter case in 2003. Um, so now, fast forward to 2023, what you see now is basically the Supreme Court taking an uncompromising position that any diversity program, any affirmative action programs targeting Blacks and Latinos, even the earlier compromises that universities made in response to Grutter and response to Bakke, any of those programs, those programs are just no longer useful. Yeah, I mean, I th- I can imagine, I mean, Justice O'Connor seemed more reasonable to me than the the court majority today. And I can't imagine that if she were alive today, um, she uh, she'd probably be appalled by um, how we've gone backwards in terms of racism and all this white supremacy. And, you know, it's just kind of it's disturbing to me. So um, I want to talk about media framing, because media framing on this really shapes how people answer poll questions. You know, the way I looked at this is that the court was inserting itself into a private university and saying, OK, you can consider this and not consider this. And if they determine that legacy cannot be used, then someone sues over test scores and they rule that out and perhaps they rule out ability to pay. Then what do universities do if there's no criteria left they can use? So that's that's kind of how I see it. And um, 
Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt professor Michael Eric Dyson was asked on ABC News if it is fair to keep in place these other factors that I mentioned uh, in admissions at Harvard, including legacy status, recruiting athletics, and financial eligibility while eliminating race. And here's what Dyson said, absolutely not. And he pointed to affirmative action for whites, including the GI Bill and other things that we sort of touched on. He said that what a lot of others have said that America is fine with affirmative action for whites, but not for African-Americans. And you sort of touched on this, but what is your take on selecting out various criteria? And do you agree with Dr. Dyson? Yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely I definitely agree with him. And, and the Supreme Court's rulings applied to both private and public universities, I believe, because they added the University of North Carolina to that equation. Am I right? I think I'm, I'm thinking. Yes, I was just pointing out but, that it this is a conservative court that always says, let's leave private business alone. <laughs> They're asserting themselves yeah, in, the so in, the private, in the private sector. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, how do you get to how do you get to high performing university, especially university in this case, a private university like Vanderbilt or, or Harvard or, or a prestigious public university? How does a student get there? Your student gets there through multiple mechanisms. One might just be pure merit. The other one might be a, a recruitment pipeline, college visitations, which may disadvantage not just persons of color, but also poor folks. Legacy, legacy matters. Do your parents go there? Do your grandparents know there? go there? Do your do your high school teachers go there? Do your high school counselors go there? Um, do they have access and inroads to people in the admissions office? Athletics matters. Um, athletics is, a, is an affirmative action recruitment tool. The idea that you can bring athletes to uh, universities like Stanford University, for example, um, or Harvard University or Vanderbilt University. Vanderbilt University won the NCAA baseball championship some years ago. It's a private university with, one of the, with maybe the largest endowment in the state of Tennessee for a college or university, public, public or private. So all of these affirmative action tools, if you're going to attack race, particularly Black and Latinos, then all these affirmative action and diversity and recruitment tools then also should be held under scrutiny as well. There was a book that was authored some years ago by Ira Kautz and Cass Nelson that said that when affirmative action called when affirmative action was white. He looks at the New Deal programs, the GI Bill, and all those kinds of things like that, and found that as great as the New Deal was, it it was beneficial with intent in many respects to white working class folks, at least a lot more so than, say, for example, black folks and other persons of color. And so what I think Dyson is also pointing out is that these established programs that we think are uh, race neutral are not race neutral. Legacy recruitments, ties to donors uh, and other factors as well. And so some of your audience may think, well, well, with athletics, you find persons of color being recruited. We're only talking persons of color. Blacks, blacks, for example, are recruited for the high dollar athletics, mainly football and basketball track and field, but that's not high dollar. I'm um, not even baseball. And football and basketball at many of these universities are actually funding mainline initiatives on campus, infrastructure, scholarships, and other programs that don't even benefit African-Americans. Furthermore, in most college campuses, most of the athletic programs actually do not involve, do not recruit African-Americans. Wrestling, swimming, tennis, rowing, Right. Most of those programs do not have a large number of African-Americans, but they still serve as recruitment tools for bringing in whites, for example, to those particular universities. While at the same time, the high dollar programs like football are funding 
university and campus-wide initiatives writ large. Right. I mean, this sounds cynical on my part, but it seems to me that in places like the University of Florida, they're happy to bring in an all African-American football team as long as they're winning. And then, as you say, they bring in all this money and that money goes somewhere else. It doesn't go to those kids. So that's one hundred percent. And, and, you know, as part of this, as part of this uh, effort to push back, especially in the South, against these this kind of these extremist attacks on diversity on persons of color, on voting rights, there is conversation or has been conversation for civil rights groups to talk to the parents of these athletes to withdraw the support from these universities. Florida and Alabama and Tennessee and Texas, um, these are institutions, these are states where you have the most vicious attacks occurring against diversity, yet their institutions are relying upon African-Americans in their bodies, in their labor, right? to feed and fund these high high dollar value sports programs. And so there is has been some talk to say, what happens if these athletes decide to withdraw their support and go somewhere else? What would that do in terms of like a kind of a boycott, kind of an athletic boycott to shaping or shifting the political culture in those particular states? The, the hypocrisy is just off the charts. I mean, the Alabama football coach, Tuberville, who's in the Senate now, I mean, he's espousing all these racist ideas. And and he, when I think when he was football coach, how many African-American players? Well, yeah. And and actually, he was at the he was at Auburn. Oh, I'm sorry. And I, I, I'm only making that distinction because Nick Saban at University of Alabama, I think, may get it may get it. And I'll just give you one example. He may get the idea that black athletes are needed to support maybe the most powerful football program in the country, but they're operating in a state that's controlled by a severe form of political extremism. And the reason why I make that point is because when the Voting Rights Act was being litigated, not delegated, when the Voting Rights Act was being debated and decided of Congress, I would say uh, several years ago, Saban who's from West Virginia, by the way, he grew up in West Virginia, he wrote a letter to, uh, I believe, Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin, saying that he should support voting rights. And so Saban, in a stealth way, has tried to do some stealth kind of activism advocacy, has tried to support, I believe, some aspects of, of a civil rights kind of agenda. Maybe not where, we, where, where I am, but much more so than most of the college football coaches at high dollar value programs. So if Alabama has to have a football coach as their center, we might have been better off with Saban. Maybe, maybe, maybe yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, thanks yeah. for that. Um, it's, it's stealth in this part, but it's there. Stealth for a reason. <laughs> well, that's a good segue to talk about um, voting rights and the Voting Rights Act. Prior to this term, the Supreme Court had been chipping away at the Voting Rights Act. And in a surprise to many of us in Allen versus Milligan, Alabama's 2021 redistricting plan for its seven seats in the U.S. House of Representatives, the court ruled that it violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, is essentially gerrymandered black voters into one seat instead of being fully represented in at least two majority black seats. So in the 5-4 decision, uh, Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh sort of broke from the other justices on the right. And Alabama tried to argue that computer algorithms <laughs> came up with one majority minority seat, but Kavanaugh did not buy it. 
saying that other computer simulations produce different results and essentially blaming it on computer algorithms is a flimsy argument. So what do you think of Allen versus Milligan? Well, I think it's a positive development in the voting rights kind of uh, community and and also in terms of representation uh, for Afro-Americans and giving Afro-Americans the ability to, to elect the candidate of their choice. There's still a long way to go because what the court ruled was that Alabama must go back and draw new maps, one that includes that second black, majority black congressional district, and the Alabama legislature is pushing back on it. So it's going to be, it's unclear as to where do we go from here. But um, in terms of the ruling, the most interesting part, one of the more interesting parts about it was that ironically, in one of the few, one of the few times, the, the lower court judges um, that were appointed by Trump actually agreed with the civil rights community. Um, and when the when the map was so when the map was when when the dispute first first occurred, the Supreme Court relied upon I would call it a flexible reading of something known as the Purcell principle, in which the Supreme Court refused to intervene before the 2022 election because they said that any electoral changes of that magnitude can't occur before an election, even though there was enough time to do so. And the Supreme Court, in doing that, actually overruled. Um, the lower court and ironically overruled some Trump judges who who basically sided with and agreed with the civil rights community. So it's one of the kind of interesting uh, ironies of this. So then the Supreme Court said, we'll take the case up after the 2022 election. And that's what it did. The Supreme Court made its decision on behalf of the civil rights community. And it caught a lot of folks by surprise. But I think with the civil rights community and the people working on that case, they were very strategic and not just crafting their arguments for the Supreme Court, but very strategic at enlisting community support on behalf of the redistricting maps that were backed by the, by the civil rights community. And assuming that that case will hold and that Alabama will draw a plan that has two majority black districts, it's a good outcome, but also it could have possibly affect uh, new congressional maps in, in Louisiana and also and maybe even Georgia as well. Well, my understanding, since you brought up elections and timing, my Alabama did not. They refused and they yes. just sent back this. And Louisiana is also resisting. Yes. There, there's a Democratic governor, a conservative one, but he tends to veto things and his vetoes get overridden. But the legislature there is doing the same thing. So I guess my question for you, this just popped into my head. If they're just trying to run out the clock, will there be time for it to get back up to the Supreme Court before the I mean, the elections are already campaign. They're already campaigning, but we're talking about elections next year. Right. So who would um, that, that I'm not sure. I know there was a new a new filing by one of the, the civil rights groups, maybe a week and a half or so ago to try to have some another 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 entry point of intervening in terms of who's going to draw the maps. Um, but it's unclear whether or not that will be done by the 2024 election. I would think it would be, quite frankly, um, even though things are very slow right now. But um, but I, I, I actually am pretty optimistic that a new map will be drawn by 2024. The question is, is that will the, the higher courts allow for a, a real cohesive, uh, substantive so-called majority black district? Or will they allow for, which was what the Republicans want to do in Alabama, they want to create, they're drawing new districts, but one district has like 40% black, the other one has a majority black. They're trying to, trying to draw a district that goes between that kind of 40% to 50% margin, so to speak, 
versus, say, a majority black plus 50 percent uh, district. So I think that's where the fight's going to be. Well, I'm glad you're optimistic. I'm I'm a little less optimistic just because I see, like, especially in Alabama, they just keep ignoring and keep ignoring. Yeah. What is the court going to do? Hold them in contempt? Now, I know years back, I think it might have been Florida, there was a state where the courts drew up. They used these yes. algorithms like Eric Holder's yeah. involved with those GIS, and they went with those consultants and they drew up something that was fair. I don't know. I can't imagine the U.S. Supreme Court doing that. But, you know, this is interesting to see how it plays well, out. Uh, I think the new filing by the civil rights groups is urging the the lower federal courts to have more say on the new maps as opposed to the state legislature. So I think that's where civil rights groups are hoping that they may have some relief. And and whether or not they go there, whether or not that, that that's allowable. But I think if federal courts do um, have more ownership over drawing that Alabama map. You could possibly get a better map, especially if the civil rights groups are allowed to weigh in on that. The question is going to be, do you have, because uh, because of the voting rights community, margins matter a great deal. So whether it be like a, a 39% to, if you got 39% African Americans versus say 50% versus say 50, 51%, all those margins matter a great deal. And I think where Republicans are going to try to argue is that we created two maps Right. But that second map uh, may not be the so-called black majority that that the civil rights groups believe is necessary to satisfy the initial Supreme Court ruling. And I think that's where you're going to have a fight over. Yeah. Right. In other words, they know how to they know where the line is and they know where they, the margins are. So they know where the line is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in a lot of in a lot of states, if you get a 40 percent, you know, black population, you can create, you know, uh, what's called an opportunity district or crossover district where 10 or 20 percent or 50 percent of whites will vote with African Americans. But in some of the southern states, Mississippi is probably a better example. The, the racial polarization is so stark that is whites always vote with whites. They almost never cross over and vote for a Democrat that the margins matter based upon context. Um, but in Alabama, there's a clear there's a clear decision by the court. The court said that that there was a clear opportunity to create two majority black districts. The the weakness of the courts um, is kind of an old adage in American politics is the courts interpret the Constitution. They don't have the power of the sword. They rely upon the executive to enforce. And (laughs) (laughs) that's that's possibly, you know, what's going to have to happen. The executive branch has got to be much more aggressive in, in enforcing it. And of course, it's problematic when the executive branch is controlled by Republicans and all of the legislative branch and the executive branch in these red states. This is not the kind of checks and balances the founders wanted. But so it's interesting. So what you're saying is that in Mississippi, there are just very few white Democrats left, as opposed to Florida, North Carolina, where there's enough to maybe help move. Yes, yes, yes. Um, And so. There's a there's there's a big debate in the voting rights community. I don't know who's necessarily correct, but the one debate is that, you know, 30 years ago, 30 or 40 years ago, if you were going to create a majority black district, you wanted to get a uh, a number that was above. Let's let's just throw out a number, a number that was above 55 or 57 percent African-American. That is, if you're in a congressional district, that's 57 percent African-American or 60 percent. That may be a more ideal number. That's the theory, because. You might be in a congressional district that um, has no histories of racism and poverty and voting machines that don't work and incarceration and a lot of. And and so the the voting age population of African-Americans is a phantom number. 
So you don't really have a the more substantive voting age population in a congressional district is actually lower than the real one. Because in many of these districts, you have long-standing patterns of voter discrimination, the disenfranchisement of people who have been formerly incarcerated, machines that break down, poor resources. So a 57% number of majority of African Americans is really not 57%, it's, 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 it's lower. So that was kind of the working theory over a period of time because of you know incumbency, reputation, media, and a whole range of factors in many of these areas. And um, African-Americans have been able to win in some areas, including in parts of the South, with, you know, having, being in a district that's like 40% African-Americans. You've had a coalition or a crossover, a coalition of voters, Blacks and whites or Blacks and Latinos that have formed coalitions and so forth. But in those areas in the deep South, the deep, deep South, that have maybe less of a cosmopolitan political culture, like Atlanta, Fulton County is much more cosmopolitan. But those areas in the deep, deep South, Alabama and and Mississippi, where there's there's still rural, poor, um, economically underdeveloped, then you still have much more stark patterns of racially polarized voting in those areas than you may have, for example, in, in New York or Ohio or places like that. And then also, I just want to say that when you talk about a majority black district, it matters if you're talking about a majority black district or, or a district that has a majority black voting age population. So all these factors matter when you're drawing in maps, whether this applies to Alabama or not. But the voting rights community knows all of this. But so do those people right. that are opposing voting rights. Right. They know just as much down to the down to the precinct level where votes are, voting age population, thirty nine percent, forty percent of black voting age population versus versus 48 versus 52. How do you get to the numbers the right way? They know exactly the same thing you do. And it's just part of the so-called great game of politics. And so they're very sneaky and the media doesn't pick up on this, but they know who the low propensity voters are. There was, I think in North Carolina, there's an HBCU where the students were heavily involved and high propensity voters. And the legislature said, we're going to cut this in half. So yeah. they, they put the congressional line right in the middle of the HBCU yeah. and the students protested, but there wasn't much they can. Yeah, and that's why when you see the Alabama maps, the legislature created two maps and the second map has quite a few blacks in it, but not a majority. But that second map, if you were in um, L.A. County, you're probably going to get a black lawmaker right out of L.A. County. If you're in you know, the Birmingham area. You know, with matching those rural white communities up to Tuscaloosa, you may not get a black lawmaker because the racial polarizing, polarized voting voting um, is so stark. And how you analyze low propensity voters, um, rural, urban, cosmopolitan, all that is based on context, as you as you pointed out. Well, what they I don't know if they still do this, but I know I used to live in Florida. They would they would just cram all of the Democrats. And so it would be like a 95 percent Democrat district. And I remember like Congresswoman Corinne Brown, who I've was a friend of my mother's. I know she was happy with her district because she always won it. Yes. But there were less that that meant fewer districts, congressional districts for Democrats. So, I mean, that's yes. all. I don't know if they're still playing that game. Yes, it's absolutely still playing that game. And sometimes, you know, African-American lawmakers play the game with them. Um, and this is a big, a big debate in the voting rights community. You know, Afro-Americans can get elected in a district that's 60 percent black. You don't need a district that's 70 or 80 percent black. And and the Republicans know this. The Republicans could, could stack African-American voters into a 70 or 80 percent district. Um, and or as opposed to you could take 20 or 30 percent of those voters and just put them in, in an adjacent district. And you can have the possibility of electing 
either another black representative or another Democrat representative, or you just give voters in those particular communities the ability to elect the candidate of your choice. And the Republicans have really have really done this, not just to um, enhance their numbers in Congress and also state legislatures, especially, but they've also done this to also um, really also push out white Democrats. Yeah, I was who just could have say, who could have yeah. twenty or thirty percent of a black voting age population in their areas, but now that black voting age population is 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 divided, cracked, packed, fragmented, all all these things that are used in the redistricting process. Yeah, I was just going to say it's kind of cynical, but they sort of rope in these African American incumbents. Yeah. Whereas the Democratic Party would probably like to have three districts that are 45, 55, at least winnable. Right. And so, yeah, so that's sort of the rub on that. (laughs) Part of the great game of redistricting. And uh, (laughs) well, I I, since I have you on the show, I really need to talk about Tennessee because a lot's been happening there and you're an expert on this. And for my listeners who may not be aware, may not remember, I'm just going to provide a quick refresher on what happened in April um, of this year in the legislature. And this is from the Associated Press, quote, in an extraordinary act of political retaliation, Tennessee Republicans expelled two Democratic lawmakers from the state legislature for their role in a protest calling for more gun control in the aftermath of a deadly shooting in Nashville. A third Democrat was narrowly spared by a one vote margin, and she was white. And the split votes drew accusations of racism, with lawmakers ousting Representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, who were both black, while Representative Gloria Jackson, who is white, survived the the vote on her expulsion, end quote. So I know that you're a lot more versed on the details of this than just about anybody. So can you just explain what happened and what the status is now? I know that the two two Justins, can I call them? <laughs> they, that, uh, Representative um, Jones and Pearson, that they were just reelected. And I would just like to know if the taxpayers of the counties have to pay for the cost of the special election or can they send the bill back to the legislature? <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it's very interesting. Um, no, the, the bill has to be paid for by the by the local elected commissions, by the local government. I know. So, I was just um, trying to make a I was just trying to make a point that it's unfair that they have to pay and it's very costly too, because not because they they had to be elected those two lawmakers in both the primary and general election. So they went the <laughs> yeah, it's it's very interesting in that respect. Um, so the the that third lawmaker, um, Gloria Johnson, uh, was not expelled um, as as you mentioned earlier during the exposure crisis. She came within one vote short of being expelled. And I think for your audience, um, I wanted to make an important point for your audience. The expulsion issue, it was more complicated than the story was because Gloria Johnson survived the expulsion by one vote. Um, But what happened with the expulsion crisis is that the order of the trials was Justin Jones first, Gloria Johnson second, and Justin Pearson third. Justin Jones and Justin Pearson were expelled. Because Gloria Johnson was second, Justin Pearson was still in the room able to vote on her behalf. Oh. So I, I believe I believe the story goes, and I I've checked the voter, the voter, uh the voting role, the, the roles of that of that expulsion plea. Pearson was able to vote for Gloria Johnson to stay in 
the legislature. I believe had he gone second in the explosion crisis, he would not have been there. And interestingly, if Gloria Johnson would have remained. And I'm only making a point because I think the the national media talks about the explosion crisis in kind of simplistic, racially essentialist terms. And it doesn't really... yeah, I had a feeling that's why I wanted to ask you. So this is breaking news here. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't mean that they weren't racist. The whole thing was. But it doesn't just, mean that they weren't racist. There were other factors, and one of the things was that like Gloria Johnson comes from East Tennessee and Knoxville, for more specifically, and in Knox County, not the Knox County Republican Party is one of the strongholds in Tennessee. They, For a long time, you can make a strong argument that they were the most powerful, it was the most powerful Republican stronghold in, in Tennessee. Um, not, so, not so anymore, I don't think, but for a long time it was. And so Gloria Johnson had been targeted by Republicans for years, literally for years, for probably the greater part of eight years, since the very beginning of her push to run. But because she was in the legislature longer, Justin Jones, began serving in January of this year. Justin Pearson was elected in a special election because the previous lawmaker that he took over for passed away, who was a very good lawmaker. I interviewed her for my research and had her had her own experiences being marginalized by not just race, but also gender. So what Gloria Johnson having been there for so for so long, you know, eight or ten years or so, then she had, you know, when you're there, when you, you know, no matter where you are in the legislature, it could be Florida. Louisiana, how bad it is. Lawmakers figure out how to get a few things done here or there. She got us some bills passed. So she was able, during her exposure trial, she brought in two former lawmakers to be her her counsel. Where race plays into effect or class is that Justin Jones and Justin Pearson did not have that level of representation during the expulsion crisis. Yeah, they were relatively new and they were not. She at least yes, yes. roads into the good old boy network. Yes, yes. And that's where that's in the same way that a, a regular courtroom may operate, where people that are established in the court have more money, middle class whites versus, say, for example, you know, black folks who don't have any money. There's already pre-existing biases built in, into a courtroom. The same thing existed in the in the expulsion crisis. So Rather than the, the media saying, well, they spilled two law, black lawmakers and cut the white lawmaker, that's more of a kind of a MSNBC kind of national media framing, whereas the, the real kind of racial biases in class are far more complicated. They relate to gender, race, race um, age, um, how long you've been there, can you get representation? Can you the whole, you know, can you have people rally behind you? There's a whole range of things that in which race intersects with all of that. And that's where Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, I think, were adversely affected in terms of race. Yeah. I mean, cable news simplifies things and wants yes. to raise our cortisol levels and sell advertising. Yes. But it, yeah. Seku, it does seem to me looking at, I guess, older white, mostly male legislators, we're sort of talking down to these young, you know, I was impressed with these young you know, intelligent, articulate, well-dressed legislators. And they were sort of talking down to them as in like the the bad old days of sun, you know, watch your place. Am I overstating that? Or do you think there was some of that? No, I think there was a lot of that. And I think that um, the the two things I would say to maybe 
offer again a more a more nuanced story to that is definitively that was part of the equation, substantially part of the case for Cleveland. I think that if one talked to black lawmakers and state legislatures across the, the South in particular, I think one finds that that attitude is much more um, part of the culture than maybe older black lawmakers will talk about, um, having interviewed older black lawmakers in the legislature. So I think that was definitely, I think that both Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, or each 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 of them comes to the state legislature with their own unique histories. Justin Jones, you know, I do know, he has been as an activist going to the state legislature for the greater part of, uh, I would say, nine or 10 years. He's kind of a organizer activist who was ultimately elected as well. Ironically, I'll tell you this, one other nuance. Ironically, Gloria Johnson's, her trial attorney, he was from the same district. He represented the district that Justin Jones was elected to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mike Stewart, yes. So where Justin Pearson enters an equation is is not, he didn't have any experience in the legislature, not as a as an organizer or a lobbyist going to the legislature. His experience is as a community organizer on environmental justice, in which he led one of the more important, co-led one of the more important environmental justice movements in, in Memphis against the pipeline that was going through South Memphis. So they both have their own experiences and they're both organizers, they're both activists, they both come out of what we might what we might call an organizing or 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 civil disobedience or in grassroots organizing uh tradition or set of traditions. They both have been criticized, even Justin Justin Pearson when he first got there, for not following decorum. But also they weren't the only ones now, too, because black lawmakers in Tennessee, writ large, many of them have faced that level of hostility. Um, it's just that no one really focused on that hostility. What's different now is that the level of political extremism in the Tennessee legislature and the ability of the supermajority, the Republican supermajority, to limit debates in the committee hearings, to cut off debates, cut off mics, all of which is was used with a muscular authority, particularly against Justin Jones, on, on not just this issue, but a range of issues. So the supermajority having almost total control undercut democratic deliberations, I mean, writ large, I mean, in, in a totalizing way, in ways that is very difficult to understand unless you are in a place like Tennessee or Florida or one of these places where a supermajority has control of the state legislature. Not just a supermajority, but a supermajority that is anchored by a very intransigent form of political extremism. Right. And just to be clear, several white lawmakers had violated decorum. Some of them broke laws and all kinds of things. 100%. Some of them broke laws. You've had in the last decade, you've had issues of corruption among white lawmakers and and their staff. You've had issues of a a lawmaker um, had a previous history of propositioning high school students. You've had other um, accusations of decorum being violated severely on the on the on the floor on the, on the house floor. So, but it's just that it was, they were they're never held accountable. Yeah, I mean, it's not, they have a supermajority. There isn't much Democrats can do. Yeah. They can barely do a point of order, and so, but they but, just they, the the majority just doesn't want them to. They don't want any kind of opposition. It seems. But the other other thing is that I'll just say a few things about what they did to the three lawmakers, and particularly the two Justins, is that there was an uprising in Tennessee after the Covenant shooting. This involved a lot of high school students. They converged on the on the Capitol to shame the shame lawmakers for not doing anything. And in the immediate aftermath of the, of the Covenant Church shooting, I mean, lawmakers didn't hardly said anything. <laughs> I mean, literally, they are, they almost went went about as business as usual, as if it almost didn't happen. And so there was a, a certain level of righteous indignation 
that not just those two lawmakers, but other lawmakers expressed at the time, especially all these high school students that were there and mothers of persons who, and family members and fathers of people who had been victimized by, by gun violence. And so what the lawmakers wanted to do was to also punch back at this form of righteous indignation, punch back at this so-called incipient movement or mobilization that was occurring. And then secondly, the attack, particularly, again, against those two Black lawmakers, was also a form of retribution politics. And I think that what the audience should know is, I think sometimes when it comes to the politics of retribution, especially when it's done by Republicans in these supermajority states, it's almost seen as if it's like a throwaway, you know, or like, um, well, how can DeSantis, for example, go against Disney or go against the Tampa Bay Rays, or they could have just censored the Tennessee lawmakers for protesting. Why would they go so far as to expel them? And knowing, by the way, in the, in the before the exposing crisis, the Democratic caucus chair literally in his conversations with the Republican leadership said, well, they'll probably be reinstated. Retribution politics or the politics of retribution is a fundamental staple of this kind of political extremist wing of the Republican Party. And so I think like we we talk about reproductive issues, abortion as if it's here, tax cuts for middle for affluent Americans as over here, uh, an attack on on civil rights as if it's over there, and then also and then retribution politics is seen as over here, as if it's owning the libs or as if it's well, ultimately, the Republican Party business community will come will come out against DeSantis. But no, retribution politics is as fundamental to the political extreme of the Republican Party in contemporary politics as are uh, reproductive issues, tax cuts, and all those other issues. Yeah, I mean, they're not content just to take away our rights. They have to take the knife and stick it in or put the knee on the neck or go the extra mile. It's just a level of meanness that is... Because- because it's, it's shaping, because it's about, for them, it's not just about, for example, the policy, the statute or the law. It's about the culture. And for them, the culture of LGBTQ plus rights, reproductive justice, fair wages, that culture represents, it's an existential crisis issue. That culture represents an America that is getting away from them, that, that has to be disciplined. And so after the expulsion crisis, the Republican caucus met and an, an audio leaked from that meeting. And the lawmakers are arguing about why they didn't expel Gloria Johnson, because now the national media sees them as only targeting two black guys. And the lawmakers were very angry. Some of the more extremist Republican lawmakers are going after those Republicans who voted to not expel Gloria Johnson. And one of the lawmakers, Scott Spicky, said, we have to stop, quote unquote, the left with this version of left from taking control. And in Tennessee, he said, we have to save the Republic. He says, Tennessee is a gateway to the Southeast. Our job is to save the Republic from being taken over by these other folks. And so for them, it's like an existential crisis. Well, and it, sounds, it sounds odd, I know. When you, but, when you, say, when you but, say save the Republic, it sounds like save the damn Confederacy. You're right. You're right. Because after the audio leak, that was a conversation that, that the chattering class had, that they were speaking in civil war terms. It was almost like going back in time to like, you know, like 1861, you know, and they're talking about save the Republic. You know, Tennessee's a gateway to the Southeast. It's almost like the Battle of Vicksburg, you know. Well, they're, <laughs> you know they're, they're tearing our Republic apart. Yes, 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 yes. So, so retribution politics, revenge. But I think for them, 
it's just as important as those material issues like tax tax debates right. and those cultural issues is just as important as retribution politics that they have to get revenge in order to institutionalize their influence into the across 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 generations to that point we need to land this plane but and i'm i'm going to try somehow to end on a positive note but before we do wrap up i just want to broaden this out to these other you know red states mo- mostly in the south and there is this disturbing trend of voter suppression uh, largely affecting minorities and students basically people who vote democrats and couple that with aggressive gerrymandering and this brazen racism and then you know if you add on to the fire some lighter fluid onto the kindling these these culture wars like the book banning don't say gay and in florida i just have to mention this you know the vice president came to jacksonville talked about this this is just off the charts disturbing to me where the teachers, teachers I know in Florida have to teach kids that slavery is beneficial. And some of them are just walking out. I mean, I don't blame them. So what is your take on all of this? And is there anything that could be done to put the brakes on it? Well, my take is that it's going to continue because the extremist wing has control of the Republican Party. In many of these states, Florida, for example, Tennessee and other states, you're going to find that this constant move to do that un- un- until they're defeated. And there's no easy way around it other than mobilization, organizing, being creative witnesses and having staying power and resilience to squash that part of the American political spectrum, because they also ha- now have the courts on their side. They now have the judiciary on their side in a way that they didn't even have in the 1960s. In the 1960s, the courts were moving to support civil rights and civil liberties issues. Now they've spent the last you know few decades stacking the courts. Trump himself got 280 federal judges on the courts that have lifetime appointments. So what's going to have to happen is organizing people having the courage to to fight it. You know, quite frankly. Um, right, and there, and, there was sorry to interrupt. There was success in Atlanta where. You know, it's sort of all of that voter suppression and gerrymandering just pissed people off and people of color and other Democrats turned out in long lines and they won in in uh, Georgia some seats. So it's they're making it harder for Democrats. But, you know, I think there is also resistance. Yes, absolutely. And so I will (laughs) I will try. There's not much positive here, but I'll try to end on a positive note by just um, thanking you for your advocacy and pointing out that these or none of this would have happened. Not this court case, this resistance, this um, the Supreme Court decision without organizations like the NAACP um, that I know that you're working with. Are there other organizations you'd like to mention that people can go to? Well, I think there's quite a few organizations. There's Black Voter Matters Fund does, does some great work. There's quite a few organizations in the Latino community, Mejente, MALDEF, Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund. A lot of the groups that are working on reproductive justice as well, on all environmental justice, all these issues you have, but grassroots organizations that are frontlining many of these efforts, many of these movements, um, often taking losses, but then picking themselves back up and also also winning and also also fighting. In Tennessee, we have Highlander uh, Research Center. We have uh, Free Hearts that organizes people who are formerly incarcerated. 
Is Black Voters Matter a national organization? Yeah, Black Voter Matters Fund is, a, is an organization, um, and I know the leadership of the group that really helped to mobilize a lot of folks in Georgia. It's a national organization. They started out really, I think, um, layering, layering themselves primarily in the South and then a few swing states in the Midwest. And then more recently, they um, have expanded their reach into the Southwest, Arizona, for example, and um and they even made, a, uh, I think, a smaller push in California. They're an important organization. And there's a lot of electoral justice groups out there that are doing great work. I actually wrote an article on the electoral justice, what's called electoral justice organizations, that helped to play a key role in the 2020 election. Yeah. I, if you send that to me, I'll put a link on with the yeah, podcast. Yes. I'll and I will, I will definitely put a link to Black Voters Matter because I, I was not aware of it. And so I think I think a lot of people are frustrated and they just want to know what can they do. So that's good. You know, I really, really appreciate you taking the time. I learned a lot from you. So thank you. Thank you, Seku, for being on the show today. And you're welcome back anytime. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at PoliticsCons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.